Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Stan Beecham. Stan is a sports psychologist and leadership consultant and is the founder of the Leadership Resource Center based in Atlanta, Georgia. His work with collegiate, Olympic, and professional athletes from many sports has afforded him insights into the minds of some of the world's greatest competitors. He's also taken his wisdom into the business world, creating leadership development programs for his corporate clients. He is also the author of the book, Elite Minds, Creating the Competitive Advantage. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Beecham. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to be with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, kind of what you do, how you got into it? Yes, I, uh, I started as a clinical psychologist, well, training to be a clinical psychologist. So I got a doctorate in clinical psychology. And when I was finishing up my doctorate degree at the University of Virginia, uh, I got reacquainted with Dr. Bob Rotella, who's a, a sports psychologist and was actually on faculty at UVA at the time. And um, I had met him at some sports psychology conferences. And at the time, he was working with a number of of uh, professional golfers. He had a, uh, it was like a graduate seminar class. And I asked him if I could sit in on the class. And I did during the year that I was at University of Virginia. And, and during the course of that year, it became clear and clear to me that my real passion was working with athletes. I had done some work at the University of Georgia, primarily with the kickers, when Vince Dooley was a football coach. And at the time, in, in 94, uh, Coach Dooley was the athletic director. So I contacted him about the possibility of coming back to the University of Georgia and starting a sports psychology program. And he said, well, we don't really have anything like that in the budget, but we have some one-year internships that you can do that. So I did, and, and of course I went with the intention of, of, of not just going for a year, but creating a program, and, and so we were fortunate, and that's in fact what happened. I ended up staying about four and a half years working with the 19 teams there at the University of Georgia, and we had we had quite a bit of success during that time, and it was just a really rewarding period for me. Uh, but after that, uh, after that four and a half years, I was married with two small children at the time, and really need to kind of get out and start making some money. So I went and joined a, a group of psychologists in Atlanta who were business consultants. And I worked with them for four years, working just uh, exclusively with businesses, uh, doing leadership development, assessing talent, those kinds of things. But in 2002, I decided to start my own practice, Leadership Resource Center. Uh, did that and then began to slowly start working with athletes again. So now my practice is a combination of corporate clients as well as collegiate professional athletes. How important is innate talent as opposed to training uh, when people are kind of pursuing a goal? Well, I think when you're, when you're talking about collegiate and professional athletes, uh, clearly they are talented. They're gifted. Some of it could just be the physical body that they were given, right? I mean, if you want to be a basketball player, a football player, there's there's a certain size you, you kind of need to be, with with few exceptions. There's other sports like golf and tennis where not so much, but you do have to be talented in that you have to you have some physical traits and characteristics that allow you to compete. You got to keep in mind that if you get to the Division One college level, those are basically the top one percent of high school athletes. So so what happens when you get to college and, and certainly in the pros? is everyone is talented, everyone is gifted, and everyone trains hard, with, with again, with few exceptions. But for the most part, at the, at the Division One college level, you're talking about 18-year-old you know, folks who were the best you know, kid in their high school and may even been the best kid to ever come out of high school. And so now they're surrounded by a bunch of other kids who are in the same situation. They're all the best from their own hometown. So everyone's talented. And, and for the most part, they all work hard, but you begin to see some variations there in, in terms of work ethic. But certainly when you get to the professional ranks, so for example, the PGA Tour, you're talking about the top 150 golfers, let's say, they're all talented, they all hit the golf ball really well, and they all train hard, and they're, for the most part, all pretty committed to what they're doing. So the mental thing comes into play there because 
Now, in order to create the competitive advantage, it's not just your ability to do the physical task, but it's your ability to do that task under pressure and in adverse situations. And that's where you begin to see a lot of variation, right? So you, if you're talented and you work hard, you can do well in certain situations and not in others. And that's exactly what you'll see at the elite level is there's only a small percentage of elite athletes who really do their very best you know, in competition and in extreme uh, competitions of championships and those kinds of things. I mean, you mentioned PGA, and it made me think immediately of Tiger Woods, right? When I mean, he was rolling along for a long period of time where he just really dominated the game of golf like nobody ever has before, and then he had the meltdown in his personal relationship, and some other things go on, and he just has never been the same. Well, I, I think when, when Tiger was at the, the top, people kind of saw him as uh, superhuman. And, and, of course, what he's you know shown to the rest of us is he's human like we are, and he's affected by external factors and the world around him. And then, of course, just his own you know personal growth and maturation process. And, but that, that's true for everyone. I mean, if you talk to an athlete who's competed for a while, they can tell you about the, the ups and downs at the times when they were extremely confident and the, and the game seemed easy. And at the same time, they can share with you times when it seemed very difficult and they became very frustrated and their confidence became very low as a result of that. So, I mean, what you see in, in, in Tiger, really, pretty much everyone's experiencing that. It's just he's on such a big stage and everything that he does gets magnified that he's a good example for that. But what I would suggest is, is that the, the path that he's taken is, is much more similar to, than different to the path that other elite athletes take. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And even beyond athletics, I think people have these same struggles in many different aspects in their life. Anytime they're trying to, anytime they're trying to perform near their their peak level, I guess. Yeah, there's just there's you know we're we're human beings, we're not robots, and there's variations. There's variations in how your body feels and how your body functions day to day. There's variations in the environment and, the, and you know the things that influence you. So it's it's a dynamic, you know, moving force. It's not static. It's not the same day after day after day. I think we want it to be that way. You know, we want life to be predictable and the same. But the fact of the matter, it's not. And, and what you see is is that people really vary in their ability to uh, adjust and adapt to those ongoing changes of this thing that we call life. I'm curious, I want to kind of delve deeper into some of the psychological stuff. How, how do thoughts and beliefs kind of hinder somebody's performance? Well, let's separate those two things for a second, okay? A, a belief is is something that you hold as true even when you're not thinking about it. So, so beliefs operate at an unconscious level. So say, for example, if I tell you that I believe that there's a God that is over the universe, even if I'm not thinking about that, I still hold that as a truth. Whereas a thought is really only active when you're engaged in the thought. So in other words, you can change thoughts. You can think one thing one minute, then you could think something totally different another. You can think I'm hungry one minute, I'm not hungry. A couple hours later, I'm cold, now I'm hot. I'm happy, now I'm sad. So the thought at the thought level, at the conscious level, that tends to change and fluctuate based upon what's going on with us in the world. But what people believe about themselves and what they believe about the world, those things stay relatively consistent and and what is really important for a person to perform at their highest level is there's there's two fundamental beliefs they have to be aware of what the main one is is what is it you believe about yourself and then the second one is is what do you believe is going to happen to you okay so what do you believe about yourself and what do you believe is going to happen to this self for the, for the most part, you can break down the belief that people have about themselves into one or two categories. Most people's belief is, I need to get better, which is just a nice way of saying I'm not good enough yet. There's a small, small percentage of people who hold the belief that I am enough, that I am good enough now. And what I want the folks that I work with is I want them to believe that they are enough now, that they are good enough now. So the way you get better is not by wanting to be better or be different. The the way we improve and grow in development 
and develop is by what we do, not what we wish for. But I, but I continue to be amazed by the number of uh, of elite athletes and even people in business who are quite successful whose fundamental belief about themselves is I'm not enough. And what happens is, is when you hold that belief, it stays, it stays uh, pretty much static and saying even when you grow and develop and improve. So what you'll see is you'll see a person who as a youngster believes I need to get better and now they may be the best in the world, but they still have this fundamental belief that I'm not enough. And so what happens is, is you never get good enough. But we live in a culture that we really uh, encourage people to have the belief that you need to get better or that you must get better. And we think that the desire to improve is really critical for success. And what I've found is it's just the opposite, is that if you never feel good enough and you never feel adequate, it's really difficult to access your best. And, and I see this as a, as a real common issue uh, across people. In fact, now when I speak to large groups, I'll usually, you know, in the talk say, you know, I'm going to give you kind of three three statements, and, and I want you to pick the one that is most consistent with how you think about yourself. So I say the first state, the first statement is, I want to get better. The second option is, I'm good enough. And the third option is, I have to get better or I must get better. And then what I do is I ask the group, I say, okay, how many, you know, the, the first option, I want to get better, is more consistent with how you think about yourself, and so on. And what you find is that about 95% of the group will pick number one or number three, that I want to or I have to get better. That there's only a small percentage of people who are at peace where they are right now. The problem is, is you, you can't be better than you are right now. You, you can You can do your very best right now. You can... You can function at your full potential right now, but in the moment, whatever it is you're doing, you can't do it any better than you can. That this desire, this continuous desire to be better is equivalent to wanting to be something that you're not. And what I want people to have a belief is that they are enough. So that's that's the first belief that I find to be really critical. And then, of course, the second one is, is what do you think is going to happen to you, which really gets into the research around optimism and expectancy, right? So we know that there's some people who have this belief or expectation that something good or something great is going to happen with their life, you know, that they've uh, they've been they've been put on this planet for a particular reason and it's to do something of significance. And then there's other folks who have a real anxiety and fear about the future and what's going to happen. So if your fundamental belief is I'm not enough and then you're fearful or afraid of the future because you think something bad is going to happen, can you see how that would hinder your ability to perform? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, at the converse, if, if I believe I'm enough and I had this strong belief that good things are coming my way, that my life is going to turn out okay, that I'm going to be successful, you can also see how that would really assist you in your performance as well. I mean, it makes sense. And the first example you use, I feel like when somebody is constantly saying, I have to get better or I'm not, I'm not good enough or whatever versus like being good enough, when they're doubting themselves, essentially they're almost creating like an inferiority complex. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you, if you want to get, you know, really technical with the terminology, the, the, the belief that one is not good enough, that, that is in essence what shame is. Shame is that there's something fundamentally wrong with me or something broken about me or something incomplete. So w w what I think is, is now in the U.S., even though we're functioning at the highest level, that we have more money and we have, a higher quality of living than we've ever had. We also have, you know, more alcohol and drug dependency. We have more depression and anxiety. We have, and they say now that, that insomnia is a number one uh, diagnosed medical problem in America. And we, and we have more debt so that even though most people have more stuff than they ever have, we have more debt than we ever have. And and what I think is going on is we're trying to get okay, not by really sitting with this core belief that we have about ourselves, which I think is, is, is an error. I think that we are enough. But we do all these other things to try to fill that void, and it just doesn't work. And, and achievement is one of those things. There's a lot of people, they want to be successful in their work, or they want to make more money because they fundamentally 
want to feel better about themselves. They want to validate themselves. So at the same time, you can look around. You, you know, most of us know someone who's who has achieved quite a bit of success or made quite a bit of money, and they're the same miserable person they were five years ago when they weren't successful and didn't have the money. So I, I see I see this a lot with folks, and I really bring it up in my work because this. Again, this fundamental belief that you have about yourself, are you good enough or not, is really critical to how you perform. It, it's also really critical to how you affect other people's lives. What, what, what I'm saying is, if my belief about myself is, is that I'm not enough, it's highly likely that I'm going to see you through that same lens, right? And so I see the world as a dangerous, broken place where there are people out there who are trying to get you which is basically what the 6 o'clock news is all about. It just reinforces that. I mean, it makes absolute sense. So that's why I think that's why I think belief is much more important than thought. Belief, belief drives thought. So one of the ways that you can really figure out what it is that you truly believe is what you spend your time thinking about. You know, what do you obsess about? What do you spend your time doing? How does somebody shift their beliefs if they have beliefs that aren't serving them well? Well, I think I think that the hard work is actually being honest with yourself and doing a thorough and careful and honest examination of, of what are your beliefs. In other words, what is it that you hold true about yourself in the world? And and when I work with people, what I actually have them do is write those things down, like just write down all the things that you believe are true about yourself, about other people, about the world, about the future. What 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 I think is going on here is is there are things that are true. There is truth, and and there's evidence for the truth. So, for example, it's true that our planet is round, but there's evidence for that, right? And there's truth that the sun is the center of the solar system, and, and there's evidence for that. But what I notice is a lot of people, they'll write down a belief about themselves in the world, and I go, okay, where's the evidence for that? And And they come to the conclusion that there either isn't one or the evidence is something that happened 15 years ago. But at the same time, then there's a bunch of other evidence that's contrary to that. But what most people realize when they really begin to examine their own belief system is that they adopted the belief system. They didn't build one from scratch. They just took the belief system of the people that were around them when they were young and, and adopted that as true. And you can see this in a number of things. I mean, for example, most people's religious views are, are the same as the family that they grew up in. You know, or political views or just general views about other people or different ethnic or minority groups. You know, these beliefs that we have, we adopt them. We don't stop and do our own work and say, okay, what has my life experience told me that is true? And so that's, that's what I do with folks is I, you know, as I take them through the process of saying, okay, let's find out, you know, what your life has shown you to be true. I mean, one of the things that I that I discovered in this process myself is that I am alive, I am here, but I didn't make me. I didn't put me here. And, and and so if I didn't create me and put me here, then what gives me the right to decide what my value and worth is? But most but most people will really fight you on that. They they really want to say, look, I get to decide my worth and value. You know, and I. Because it's me and it's my life, and and one of the things I want them to consider is is, well, but why is that? You you don't usually when we think about other people. I mean, if I was standing here passing judgment on you, and you would say, hey, look, Stan, you know, it's not really not right to pass judgment on me or judge me, and I would say, you know what, you're right, that's true, I'm sorry, but yet I'd turn around and do the same thing to myself. So a lot of people learn not to stand in harsh judgment of others, but yet they still stand in harsh judgment of themselves. And we and we hold on to this like this is some kind of, you know, benefit to us that it creates some performance advantage, and it doesn't. It makes sense to me. I mean, even when you talk about the idea that people want to determine their own value, even that is such a relative concept. I mean, you ask twenty different people what they value about you, and you're going to get, probably get a lot of different answers. And if they were honest, like very different kind of determinations of what that is. I mean, I don't know if that's really that healthy of a process <laughs> of going in and around and asking people how valuable they think you are. But, but when, when you're talking about this, that's just kind of one of the, the ideas that 
that came to mind. And I see what you're saying. And I know I've been guilty of this. I think everybody probably has been guilty of this at different times. It's kind of these like these limiting ideas that hold us back and they kind of have a huge effect on our, our thinking and our productivity and our potential. Um, what are some of the other kind of key strategies for building a successful mindset? Like I said, you know, the, the first one, and I think the one that, that has the most value to people and the most significance is just to really begin to understand what one's belief system is and to, and to, and to critically examine it. In other words, what's the evidence for it? What I find most people do is they want to, it's kind of like a Lego system. They want to just keep adding on to the belief system, right? So what you see in, in, in our culture in terms of improvement is, you know, the way you get better is you go out and you read a book about it or you go to a workshop or, or those kinds of things that you add more information, knowledge. And the belief is, is that by adding more information and knowledge and more content that we're somehow going to be better off. And there's truth to that. At the same time, there's also truth to, you know, getting getting rid of stuff. In other words, having less beliefs, having fewer opinions, not more, uh, having less stuff in your head. I mean, one of the things we learn from from uh, looking at athletes who perform at a high level is that, you know, what we call the zone or the flow. What you find is is that when people are performing at their at their peak. Their mind is very quiet. In other words, there's not any thinking going on. And we tend to we tend to have this belief that if you're not thinking about something, then you can't do it well. But the but the fact of the matter is just the opposite: is that when we tend to do really well, whatever it is we're doing, because our mind is quiet and we're not thinking, it it feels effortless. It feels as if we're not even trying that hard. And then people have this experience, and they and they go, "How do I recapture that?" And so they sit around and think about how they can recapture that. But but the fact of the matter is, is, is there's no need to think about it. And you you can see, I mean, I see this a lot with, with my work with golfers. You know, most of them are thinking about something while they're playing golf or while they're standing over the ball. And the challenge is to, is to get them to quit thinking and just use their senses and just see and respond to what you see and trust that. I mean, that's the whole issue of trusting yourself. Or as in, you know, golf terminology, they talk about trusting the swing. It, it's it's about not thinking. It's about not analyzing. It's about not critiquing. So I spend a lot of my time, you know, answer your question, what are techniques, of just getting people to, to, to quit being critical and judgmental of themselves. You know, so I ask them, did, you know, did you go out today with the intention of screwing up or doing poorly? No. Okay. Did you go out with the intention of doing the best that you could? Yes, I did. Okay, that's all there is. Right. I mean, you either did your best or you didn't. And, and if you did your best, there's nothing else left to examine or critique. If you didn't, then, the, you know, find out what kept you from doing your best, what kept you from putting yourself out there. But I, I, I haven't run into anyone who wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I really want to go out there and screw up something today. You know, I want to go out there and, and do damage. I want to, you know, I want to go out and harm people. That's not the intention that most folks have. Their intention is to go out and do good and help folks and make things better. As you were talking, I, I started thinking that I guess the trust would come from the, their training or past experiences. But then I started thinking about some of the things you were saying. And I feel like maybe the trust comes from the idea that all you can be is as good as you can be in that moment. Yeah. Well, is that true? Yeah. I mean, can can you be something that you're not? Can you be better than you are? I, I I don't see any evidence for that. I also don't see any evidence for a need to be better than that. And I know there's a lot of people that would debate me on that. When you when you get when you get someone who who lives their life in the arena who has to perform once they once they understand that it's transformative. I mean, part of the joy of my work is you can see a person make just a small shift in that. And and then all of a sudden, it's like the floodgates are open and they, they, you know, their performance and their ability to do whatever that they need to do improves significantly. And that's all they did is they came to the realization that I'm good enough and that my best is good enough. And that all I can do is is what I'm capable of doing, and they make peace with that. And then you see this huge surge, and you know, 
how well they perform. This is fascinating. And the stuff that you're saying makes so much sense. In certain ways, it feels like very zenish, right? Like kind of just being in the moment and performing and reacting and using your instincts. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that we attribute a lot of that to Eastern philosophy and religion, and 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 there's some truth to it. I, I would suggest that it's also a, a teaching of, of of Western religions, you know, Christianity, for example. But if you if you if you go back and and look at say a religion like Buddhism and the and the fundamental teachings of Buddha, you know, he said we suffer because we desire our situation to be different, not because of the situation. Right. If you're wanting to go outside and play golf and it's raining, then you're upset because it's raining. But if you just, you know, planted your garden two days before you see it's raining and you and you're happy. So it's it's not the rain that causes your joy or happiness. It's it's that did you desire it to rain or not? And so what I'm getting to is, is we live in a culture where there's a lot of desire that we want certain things and we want it to be a certain way. And so when it doesn't work out our way, it really causes us a lot of grief and suffering. So the, the more Eastern philosophy is, a, is, is, is around one of accepting, whereas our Western culture is about how we're going to change the world. You know, how are we going to be a force of nature ourselves and, and alter the outcome of the world versus how do I get in the flow of it and move with it? So, yeah, they are somewhat opposing, you could you, you could say. And I think... Our culture is all about go out there and, you know, show the world how tough you are and go make some stuff happen, you know, versus move with it. You don't have to alter it. You just have to get in sync with it. And this is what you find with athletes that when they perform at a high level, they have this feeling of being in sync with it, whatever this it is, this energy, that they don't find themselves struggling against themselves or the situation they're in or even their opponent. They just move with it somewhat effortlessly. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life, as quickly as possible. Check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Well, I can tell you that the athletes that I work with, you know, going into competition, let's say if you take like this, go use it the PGA Tour as an example, where you start a competition with roughly 150 participants. And, and, and what's interesting about golf is it's halfway into the competition after day two, half of them get cut, roughly half of them. Okay? That's kind of interesting, isn't it, if you think about it? At the beginning of that competition where you have 150, how many of them want to win the competition? And I would suggest to you that all 150 want to win. But if you asked a question a different way and said, how many of them expect to win? In other words, they think they're the one who's supposed to win. Now you've got a small number, you know, maybe 10. And then the question is, is are you one of those 10 people who thinks that you're supposed to win? And, and obviously that's where you're trying to get, where you, where you have an expectation, which is a belief, right? You have an expectation that this is going to go really well. And that if I do what I need to do, and so once you once you believe it's going to go well, once you believe you're going to win, or once you believe that you're going to be successful, you've been thinking about it. You see, people who are obsessed with success, it's because they're not being successful. 
But what I'm saying is, is, is once you get there and once you really have the belief that I'm going to do really well, then you don't have to think about it anymore. I mean, it makes sense that the idea of being in the moment, because if you're focused on this much bigger picture, you are not like the way that you win a golf tournament is by consistently hitting the ball well, right? Not by thinking about how am I going to win the tournament? Trying to win the tournament or shoot a particular score will get in the way of you hitting the ball well. I mean, the golfers that I work with, you know, what I ask them to evaluate is, is did I hit a committed golf shot? You know, did I stand over the ball with the belief that I knew where it was going to go before I hit it? And if you can do that time after time after time, you're going to be fine. You're going to shoot a low number. And if you're good enough that day, you'll win the tournament. And if you're not, then you just got to let it go because it wasn't your day. Yeah. But, I mean, if you think about the corporate world, world, I mean, you know, most corporate entities, they really focus on the numbers and they're constantly evaluating and they constantly have people in this mode of measuring them and telling them whether or not they're good enough or not. And they believe that it actually helps drive productivity. And if you suggest to them otherwise, they'll look at you like you're crazy versus focusing on the process. What are the things that we need to do day after day? How do we need to treat people? How do we need to treat our customer? You know, what's the quality of the product we need to create? With the belief that if we do that thing, if we do those things, you know, our, our P&L numbers will be fine. I mean, they'll say that, but they don't do it. From a product perspective, that was kind of Apple's philosophy for a long time. Just focus on creating the best product possible and everything else will take care of itself. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I really do. And I, I think that's that's a key to success is do what you do as well as you can and then get to the point where do what you do better than anyone else could do it. I mean, I think I think that's true in anything. If you become the best at whatever it is that you do, somebody's going to pay you to do that. You're going to be able to make a living. Yeah, it's true. And in, in really anything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I look at what people make money. You, you live in New York City, right? Yep. I mean, there are people who make a bunch of money walking other people's dogs. I have, I had a, I had a person I worked with recently. I mean, I was at a, at a you know, with a client working, and and one of the people there was from New York City, and and she was talking about how she travels a lot. She said, you know, I spent four hundred fifty dollars last month having my dogs walked. <laughs> I'm like, really? I mean, there's people who pay that much for rent. I was in a conversation the other day and there was with a YouTube personality who's done really well and they were talking about video games and they're saying that one of the top channels on YouTube is a video game player. And the guy was telling me that he goes, based on the, the money that I'm making, that guy's got to be making between nine and $10 million a year playing video games. <laughs> wow. But you're right. I think that makes a lot of sense if you get good enough at anything. And really like a lot of that has to come from internally, right? Just focusing on each step of the process. Yeah. See, see, what I think goes on is, is people believe that the way you become successful is you have this great desire and motivation to be successful. Okay. That the, 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 the drive and the desire, that's the key. I don't think that's it. I, I think it's the passion that's the key. In other words, if you love to do something, you're going to be motivated to do it, right? Let's, let's use your video game example. If you're some kid and you love playing video games and you play and you get really, really good at it because you spend eight hours a day doing it, not because you're driven or motivated or you feel like you have to, but because that's just what you love to do. In time, because of the practice effect, you're going to get great at it. So, so the development of skill, the way you develop it, you know, into greatness is not solely out of desire. It's more out of the passion and, and repeatedly doing something that you that you passionately do. But yet, you know, we live in a country where, you know, parents will encourage their children to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or whatever because they say you can make a good living doing this. So now you end up with this bright kid and they went to college and they got a degree and they studied something they weren't really interested in. You know, and so they go to work every day doing something they hate to do, but they make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and they say, well, I can't quit. Well, I mean, that, you know, that's very similar to slavery, <laughs> you know, where it, now it owns you. You were talking about beliefs and questioning beliefs earlier, and I think you're absolutely right. Whether it's 
I mean, whether it's somebody's kind of religious upbringing or their value system or it's the job that their parents wanted them to have or suggested they have. You used a few different examples. I mean, there's so many different places, but we develop these beliefs. And how should somebody question their beliefs so that they can figure out which ones are kind of really theirs, which ones are really kind of helping them? I mean, you said write them down, but I... Yeah, that's the, that'd be the first step. Yeah, the first thing to do is just be, is just to keep a journal and just write down the things that you believe are true. Just make a list, okay? Don't edit it. Don't question it. Just as it comes to you, just write it down. And then what you'll find is you'll have a number of pages of, you know, these statements, right, which are things that you believe or hold as true. And after you feel like you've kind of exhausted that, then go back and look at it and just simply say, okay, where's the evidence for this being true? And if the evidence is my grandmother told me this when I was four years old, you know, that's not going to hold up. You've got to have your own personal experience for it. And so what's going to happen is, is you're going to start crossing these things off. And, and, and I've talked to people who basically say at the end of it, I ended up with no belief. Well, now you're free. You know, now, now, now you're free to believe and think and function as you want to versus as you think you should or have to. Now, most people aren't going to do that. There's going to be certain ones they're going to hang on to. And the fact of the matter is most people are too afraid to really evaluate some of their beliefs because it's just too scary to them or they're afraid that they're going to, you know, get the gods mad at them and, 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 and be damned to hell or something. But it really is important that you go through that process if you want to be, a, you know, uh, a full-grown adult who, who functions at his or her best consistently. You have to go through that process. But yet it's very basic, isn't it? I mean, I haven't said anything that, you know, someone listening, go, man, this guy's really smart. I mean, it's, it's not. It's, it's very commonsensical. It's, you know, it's very much just base core kinds of things. You know, what do you believe about yourself? And where did that come from? And is it true? And, you know, if it's not true, then toss it. Because having no having no belief around something is preferable than having a false belief. It makes me think of. I mean, this is a little bit different tangent, but I feel like it's loosely related. I have a friend of a friend of mine had done this interview for a book she was writing, and she interviewed this guy, Ray Dalio. So in New York City, he runs a hedge fund and manages like way over a hundred billion dollars. He's like one of the wealthiest people in the world, but he wrote this thing called the principles and he kind of did exactly what you said, except what he came up with was a set of principles that he lives by. And they're, I mean, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but like things like if you spend more money than you make, it's not really sustainable. Right. So he came up with this list of things over time. He's a quantitative type of guy. He runs a hedge fund. Even before he ran a hedge fund, he was still kind of in that industry for a long time. And so he's playing percentages and he goes, the percentage, if I do this enough, I do this consistently from a percentage perspective, it usually holds true. And he follows them and claims that's how he became a billionaire. Right. And what he's, but what he's also saying is I have evidence for this. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's taken a lot of time to examine his beliefs. So that's, that's where the connection was. Yeah. But if, if you, if you listen to people, let's say you got a friend and a friend says, you know, I'm terrible. I'm a loser. You know, my life is just a mess. And then you say, well, why do you think that? A lot of times they'll just go back, well, I just feel bad. <laughs> you know, or, or they'll pick this one isolated event. You know, my boyfriend doesn't want to go out with me anymore. Therefore, my whole life is terrible. Really? But I mean, it's kind of like hunger. You, you know, you, you, you're going to be hungry until you eat again. And you're, and you're going to feel bad until you feel better again. But a lot of people, they get in this ditch and they just, they look at it as it's going to always be this way. But, but your evidence, the evidence suggests otherwise, doesn't it not? I mean, the evidence suggests that you're going to have a good day and then, you know, you'll have a bad day and then you'll have another good day. And if you can see the, the dynamic movement of how life is, you don't have to freak out when, you know, you have a bad day or a bad week. You understand that that's just part of the process, right? That's the human experience. Is there are days when you're going to struggle? There's days when it's going to be difficult. I think about living in, a, in an area that's got a drought, right? If uh, 
like it doesn't rain for a while, but it's rained in the past. You just kind of have to assume that it will rain again. In the meantime, you just got to keep going. We talk about performance and you say there's no such thing as individual performance. Can you explain that? Well, I think we live in a culture that really celebrates the individual, right? Like you were talking about the NBA. You know, what, what's, what's interesting is when I was a kid coming up, you know, you, you had a favorite team, and now people have a favorite player. When I was a kid, the, the name on the front of the jersey is what was most important. Now the name on the back of the jersey is most important. And it, and it, and it tells you something about this kind of hero worship culture that we have, where we used to, we used to you know, admire the group or the team or the company and now we admire the player or the CEO or the superstar. And and so it really is kind of a cultural shift. But what we tend to think is that these, these great people, they did it themselves. And in fact, a lot of times they'll talk about, you know, how I did it, right? How I got to this level of success. And and I don't see it that way. I, I, I believe that human beings are social animals. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. We choose to live in groups and packs. I think any baby that's abandoned at birth is not going to live. It's dependent upon someone to care for it and feed it and, and love it. And if those things don't happen, that baby's not going to make it. At the same time as children, we need the same thing. We need people to teach us. We need people to care about us and nurture us along. So all these grown-ups who've become successful, you know, they didn't teach themselves to read. They didn't teach themselves how to tie their own shoes. They didn't feed themselves when they were infants. Someone did that for them. So I think the people that are really paying attention, what they realize is that their success, sure, they worked hard, and they absolutely made sacrifices. But at the same time, somebody gave them a chance. You know, I was working with a golfer the other day, and I said, you know, once you, once you have the talent and ability, all you then need is an opportunity. Because if you have the ability and you have the talent, when you get opportunities, you'll make it happen. And, and I find this to be true in my own work, you know, is the hardest thing to do is create new opportunities for myself because you're dependent on someone else to call you up and say, hey, I'd like for you to do this. You have to essentially be invited to the party. And, and this this means that we're dependent upon other people. And I don't think that makes us weak. We tend to think that if if, if you're, you know, words like dependent or words like vulnerable, we associate those with weakness. But I think to understand the dependence that we have upon each other, the fact that what you do affects me and what I do affects you, and and to acknowledge that in a vulnerable way, that's an act of strength. And and, and so that that's what I mean by, and when I talk about the book about there is an individual performance, what I'm saying is, is we're affected by the people and the situations that are around us. And, and in fact, and uh, in Collins, good to great, you know, in his interview with these CEOs, they talked about being lucky. This was a reoccurring theme that these are people who said, you know, I, I came at the right place at the right time. And I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, would Abraham Lincoln be as revealed as much as, as he is if he wasn't the president during the Civil War? You know, I mean, would Martin Luther King Jr. you know, be be known the way he is if the civil rights movement wasn't happening at that time. So, I mean, we, but I'm saying is these people, when you read their writings, they acknowledge that, you know, that the, the time made them great too. The opportunities of the moments in which they lived made them great. And then the other element of it was once they had those opportunities, they didn't let their anxieties control them. Well, if you see the opportunity as a gift that's been given to you, and you hold it that way, then you're not likely to freak out about it. It's kind of like if we go to Vegas and you got a buddy there and he gives us each a thousand bucks in chips to play with, so we're playing with house money. You know, when you look down and half your stack is gone, you're not going to be so troubled by it, right? But if you but if you go to Vegas with your last thousand dollars and you think you're going to you know, go out there and turn your last thousand into ten and then come back home. When half your stack is gone, you're going to start freaking out a little bit. But see, my view is is that we're all playing with house money. As you're talking, I was just thinking about, I mean, you mentioned Lincoln and King, and I started thinking about Mandela. 
and just he didn't seem like the type of man whose ambition was to become the icon that he became. He was focused on much simpler things and Yeah. I think I think that's you know what in in religious circles when they talk about you know being being chosen or being called to do something. I mean, a lot of the times, you know, you choose and pick something. You know, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? You know, which of these pair of shoes do you want to buy? Which car do you want to get? Which house? We're making a choice, and we're very cognizant of that. But there's other times when you're being chosen, and I think it's important to be equally is conscious of those moments. It's it's okay to make choices and, and act upon your free will. At the same time, there's things that happen to you, or there's times when the world's going to choose you to do something. Pay attention. Don't, you know you don't want to miss those opportunities. That's the difference between doing and happening, right? There's the things that we do, and there's the things that happen to us. And, and, and it's okay to make peace with both of them. My dad passed away in my early 20s, and one of the things that uh, he used to say a lot was he felt like one of the keys to success in life was taking advantage of opportunities as they come. Because you can have a plan, but things are just going to happen and pop up. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow the plan, but things are going to pop up, and when they do, you have to be willing to recognize those opportunities and take advantage of them. Sure, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And also acknowledge that you didn't create the opportunity. In other words, there's a humility uh, that comes with that. I, you know, when I was a young man, I, I believed in this concept of being in control of my life. And, and I lived with this arrogance that I was in control. And, and, and now at age 52, I don't feel that way anymore. I mean, certainly I get to make decisions. You know, I can control where I come and go and those kinds of things. But I had this awareness of now of not being in control of it and, and, and being actually calmed by that, being reassured by that, that there's something, you know, bigger than me that's at play, and I, and I like that, and I don't even understand it, and I, I don't think I probably ever will, and I'm okay with that, too. I'm not, I'm not, you know, there's a certain things that are never going to make a whole lot of sense to me. I'm just not going to be smart enough to make sense of it. Uh, you know, I like what Einstein said. He said, you know, at the end, he said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that either everything's a miracle or nothing is. Okay, which one is it? And then I think, you know, which 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 would you rather pick? I I tend to believe that there are miracles, and yeah, I want to I want to believe that, but I'm I'm comforted by that. I think we do live in a miraculous, wonderful world where beautiful, wonderful things are happening all the time, and we have the capacity to add to that or take away from it. Can you talk about kind of why having fun is an important component of being successful or being productive? Well, here, here's here's how I think of it. I'll probably use a different word, word than fun. I don't use the word fun and happy too much. I I think that when you come to the realization that you're here on this planet to perform some task or do something, which I think is true for all of us, and you finally find out what that is, and you begin to do that, 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 that I realize, okay, here's what my mission is. Here's why I'm here. These are the talents and gifts that were given to me. And so now I know what to do. I think when you're doing that, whatever it is, that's when you're going to feel most alive. And so what you're, what you're talking about is kind of having fun. I, I understand what you're saying. I think of it in terms of, of being fully alive, being awake. And, and, and that's a wonderful, joyous experience to realize I'm doing that which I'm here to do, and I'm doing it as well as I can. And once you have that realization, it brings a lot of joy and peace to your life. And there are moments when you have fun, if you will. I would argue that people who aren't, who haven't yet found their path, they still experience fun, but they don't have that deep peace and joy that people have when they say, okay, this is what I'm to be doing and I'm going to do it. Essentially the fulfillment that comes with living at your potential. Yes. And being fully alive. That's what I think is, is every one of ours task. And I'll, you know, when I speak with college kids, some of the universities I speak to, sometimes they'll let me talk to all the athletes. So I have a couple of hundred kids in the room and I ask them two questions. The first question I ask them is, is 
How many of you believe that there's a purpose or intention for your life versus you're just some random, you know, accident? And the and, and almost all the kids will raise their hands if they have this fundamental belief that there's a purpose or intention or hope for my life. And then I follow up with the next question is, is how many of you know what it is? And what happens is on the first question, almost ha- all the hands go up. And then on the second question, only a few go up. And then I say to them, I said, so now, now you know what your job is. Your job is to find out why you're here, what you're here to do. That's the most important thing you can do. And that's, it's okay that you don't know it. Just get busy, you know, having a series of experiences that will lead you to find out what they are. Because what a waste it would be to go through your whole life and never, never find out what you're here to do and never do it. And, you know, we have a lot of people that that's, that's what's going on with them. And, I mean, you know, that's why, you know, we have a billion-dollar industry of selling antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications and sleep medications because we got folks who haven't found out what they're yet here to do and they're not doing it. And and at the core of themselves, they're really aching because of that. I mean, there's a lot of pain that comes with that. And so we find ways to anesthetize ourselves, whether it be drinking or drugs, prescription or not, to deal with that pain. Because when human beings hurt, they want to stop hurting, right? And we've gotten really good at creating ways to help you stop feeling the pain that you feel. Are there any other thoughts, perspectives, words of wisdom you want to impart on the listeners? Well, I just, I, you know, my hope for everybody listening is, is that you come to the realization that you're enough. And all you can do is the best that you can with what you have. And if you're doing that, you're winning. That is awesome advice. And if you're listening, you want to learn more about Dr. Beecham. Uh, you want to learn more about his book, his coaching, the different things that he does. I'm going to post a link in the Craft Charisma website and within the descriptions of this podcast so you can find out about him and get access to him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.